Data Skeptic features interviews with experts on topics related to data science, all through the eye of scientific skepticism. Slater Viktorov is CEO of Indico Data Solutions, a company whose services turn raw text and image data into human insight. He and his co-founders studied at Olin College of Engineering, where Indico was born. Indico was then accepted into the Techstars Accelerator program in the fall of 2014 and went on to raise $3 million in seed funding. His recent essay, Big Data Doesn't Exist, received a lot of traction on TechCrunch, and I've invited Slater to join me today to discuss his perspective and touch on a few topics in the machine learning space as well. Slater, welcome to Data Skeptic. Thank you for having me, Kyle. Oh, it's my pleasure. So, uh, yeah, I first kind of caught wind of you and your company and everything that was going on when that TechCrunch article came out. Oh, well, thank you. Your anecdote rang with me. It's an experience I've had where you have your customers uh, commonly exaggerating how much data they have. Absolutely. Uh, I'm curious if you have any thoughts on why this is so common. Yeah, if I had to guess, there was some transition that happened in the last couple of years where data went from something that was a need to have and maybe a little cherry on top for legitimacy to something that could, in many cases, entirely replace it. So you had companies showing up that, if you looked objectively at their revenue numbers, at their user growth, were not very attractive companies, but people sort of wised up to the fact that if you added data to that, it became the magic sauce that turned an average company into the next Google. And I think that that, that kind of spiraled out of control. And everyone sort of saw that more data was better. And when you saw the rise of Hadoop and Spark and Yarn and all of those frameworks that made it very easy to deal with large amounts of data, people saw it very much as a, as a badge of honor, as a sign of legitimacy to be working with more data. What I found is that when you actually dig behind the curtain a little bit, the number of data stores out there that are on the scale that people typically refer to their own data, you know, terabytes and petabytes, are just very few and far between. Even if you looked at all of the text data out there presented on every social media channel, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Discuss, WordPress, and keep on going down the road, you might get to terabyte level data. Mm -hmm. You're still not going to hit petabytes. Even with all of the text data that exists in the world, I think there's, there's a piece here where the reality and the perception have kind of diverged. Just people hear those petabyte and exabyte numbers all the time, and they assume if they're not at that level, then they're missing out. Yeah, it makes sense. There's something sort of intuitively appealing about more is better, right? But I'm yeah. also a, a big fan of the law of diminishing returns. So I'm curious, uh, how do you imagine looking at what's the right size of data for a company or an, or, or an organization to hold? So I think it depends very much on which side of the equation you're on. There's the consumer of whatever machine learning algorithm is being produced, and there's the trainer of whatever is being produced. Mm -hmm. We have a rule of thumb that we use internally. We're you know, on the training side where we're building these models ourselves, which is that for an image model, you need approximately 10,000 examples to get a reasonable signal. On the text side, across the board, we usually just add another factor of 10x. Text is just generally much harder to work with than images are. That said, I would say on the, on the consumer side, if you're not the one actually building up those models, then you can take that number down, down quite dramatically. Is that ideally, you should be able to get actionable insights on a few hundred examples. If you're going north of that, obviously there are, are a lot of benefits that can come from large amounts of data analysis, but we found that once you get to 100, you're really getting a, a large portion uh, of the analysis that you'll get going forward. And it's much more useful to, instead of just having 1,000 tweets from a person, instead of 100 tweets, having 100 tweets from 1,000 users. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. 
it seems to me that in the the big data discussion is also kind of a distraction from the value we might find in small data. Uh, perhaps yeah. this is a bit philosophical, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on how we measure the value of a data set, both big and small. That's an excellent, excellent question, and it's a very hard one to answer appropriately. The truth is that people today still have no clue what their data is worth, and it has very little to do with size. The best example that I can think of, and it's one that I always go back to, is clickstream data. Mm -hmm. And clickstream data is a common example where people have gone out and gathered terabytes and petabytes of data and sort of been left wringing their hands saying, now what on earth do I use this for? <laughs> Um, on the flip side, right? even though that is an extraordinarily massive data store, it's, it's worth almost nothing, almost nothing. On the flip side, look at ImageNet. And ImageNet is approximately 1,000 images in 1,000 categories. So it's about a million, million examples. It's a few dozen gigabytes. The value of ImageNet, just because every image is tagged with that metadata of, oh, this is a picture of a dog, this is a picture of a cat, ImageNet has fueled image research in academia for close to a decade now. The value of that is an uncountably priceless data set, even though it's, it's far smaller. So I would say the value of the data, it's not related so much to size, it's far more related to the quality of what's in the data set. So I would say that for a certain quality, obviously more is better, but the value that you get for ImageNet going from zero to a million is far more than you'd get even going from a million to 10 million. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to do that same value again, you'd have to go from you know, a million to a hundred million examples, and then it would be maybe twice as useful as the underlying, but it again gets very much into uh, that law of diminishing returns, as you said. There's a paper I frequently quote by uh, Banco and Brill from Microsoft Research titled, Absolutely. Yeah, so you know it, uh, scaling the yeah. very, very large corpora for natural language disambiguation. Given your expertise in NLP, would you maybe summarize the paper and share any additional thoughts you have on their result? Absolutely. So uh, the paper is relatively simple. They take a number of NLP algorithms and see effectively how the accuracy increases with larger amounts of data. Big surprise, what they find is that the more data they use, the more accurate the models get. What you might not realize and what most people don't realize is that the amount of data that they're dealing with in that paper, even at the very summit of what they're doing, is still very, very small. The maximum model that they train is on a billion tokens, which sounds like a massive number, but if you start putting that back into bits and bytes, it's less than half of the size of Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. It's really just a tiny portion. So even when they call that very, very large data, the first thing that I would say is, yes, you definitely do get more, more value the more data you put into something. But already at that very small scale, when they're talking even through 10 million or 100 million tokens, you see the returns sort of flatten off. The curve that everything really starts to take is that you see a very quick acceleration to a decent level of accuracy. And then you see a very slow progression from there. You got this sort of linear increase in accuracy for an exponential increase in data. So usually what you'll see is if you 10x the amount of data you have, you'll consistently get another 4% accuracy. And if you 10x it again, you'll get another 4%. Uh, that would actually, that would be quite good. Mm -hmm. But the idea is it's, it's very clearly diminishing returns and it becomes much more about not how do we end up getting more data. I mean, that is obviously a, a 
a huge problem, but you very quickly, after one or two orders of magnitude, just get beyond the amount of data that exists. Mm -hmm. So it becomes all about pushing that linear growth as far down the data pipeline as possible, which is why you see a lot of people moving to these algorithms that can make better use of larger data. But even, again, and I, I just need to say, is at that extent of large data, the biggest text models in the world today are barely at the edge where it makes sense to use Hadoop mm -hmm. for people where that where that makes sense. Yeah, there's always that overhead, I guess. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so Hadoop's own internal metric is that unless you're dealing with at least five terabytes of data, you're going to see better performance out of Postgres or MySQL or a more traditional data store. Um, we've run a lot of tests internally that show that to be approximately true. There's a lot of niceties that Hadoop really gives you, but I think it's it's a place where people have let the buzz get ahead of the actual value that it provides. Mm -hmm. And people use Hadoop all the time on, on text corpuses, but to be perfectly honest, you're, you're not doing yourself any favors unless you're working at a Twitter or a Facebook where you actually are dealing with terabytes of text. Yeah, it makes sense. In a similar vein, a lot of deep learning researchers claim that Many of the you know, somewhat impressive advancements in their area are due in large part to large labeled data sets. Um, yeah. Yet, as you pointed out in your article, that can be really prohibitively expensive. So, Absolutely. Curious if you have any high-level advice for an entrepreneur or CIO trying to right-size their data strategy. Let me see. You have to, you have to hustle. You really have to hustle. There's no free lunch when it comes to data out there. The advances that we found in deep learning getting to larger data sources are few and far between, not because the advantages aren't there, but just because these large label data sources are exactly as you've said, prohibitively expensive. The honest advice that I would give any company trying to train their own models, trying to you know right-size their data solution, is that if you're relying on crowd labelers, you're probably making a mistake. Hmm. Academic sources, you know, five, ten years ago, because they've got nice grants and can sort of afford to throw money around, have gone through and, and sort of made these data sets for us already. A, you can train on a lot of those and sort of prototype and see how much value that extra data gets you. The other piece, just going back again to that diminishing returns, is as an individual, you can label a thousand pieces of data and it's not going to cost you that much money. Moving from a thousand to a hundred thousand is going to cost you, if you're a really small company, approximately all of the funds you have at your disposal. <laughs> Um, and chances are that you can get that amount of data, get from that 1,000 to 100,000 by doing data mining, by just thinking very carefully about where that data exists. So honestly, the advice I would give to entrepreneurs is don't crowd label. Not only is the quality low, but the expense is extreme. You're only really going to be able to have a tractable problem is if you can find an existing data store out there that works well. And thinking very cleverly about where that data store can come from is difficult. You know, it's interesting. I've had similar experiences with having grand hopes that I could use Mechanical Turks to label my data sets and having that not quite work out, saying, well, let me do like a best three out of five. And yeah. that was maybe a tiny bit better, but just not perfect. And I'm and then you've already spent five times the money. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not trying to pick on the Turkers in particular, but is there something wrong with crowdsourcing? Do we need to have experts, you think, with backgrounds in taxonomy doing labeling? Or is there a middle ground? Um, what's one to do if they want to create a labeled data set? So I, I totally see where you're coming from, and I would, I would flip that on its head. Mm -hmm. There's an example that I always go back to. Earlier in my career, I did a lot of work in education technology. Education technology is no stranger to taxonomy. So I was dealing, uh, I was working at Pearson. Pearson was trying to do this whole push to move a lot of their printed resources into the digital world. And 
one of the pieces that they did in order to make that transition a reality was they went out to a whole bunch of teachers. They called these people, you know, subject matter experts, people that theoretically know very well how course material comes together. And they tried to make this this big taxonomy. It was a prerequisite graph saying you have to learn pre-algebra before you learn algebra and breaking that down into a couple thousand very, very modular pieces. But here was the fascinating thing. When you made this dependency graph of what you had to learn first, you got cycles. Um, and I don't know exactly how technical all the listeners are, but it means it's impossible to learn. <laughs> it means that fundamentally the experts did not know what was happening and the experts didn't agree. So what I would say is that if experts don't agree, what's the chance that an average person on the street is going to? And I would even take that a step further to say the, the solution is not to try to improve that quality, but instead to learn how to perform with lower quality data. So there's been a really large migration that we've seen from the so-called gold standard corpi, or corpora, sorry, that are human labeled, you know, often with three to five layers of checking and double checking. That was really good for the old style of machine learning, where you wanted to be very sensitive to individuals, where people were sort of going after 100% accuracy. But we've realized that that is just not the case. Humans are not 100% accurate, and it's a flaw to believe that they are. Mm -hmm. So I believe instead, what you should do is learn how to deal with messy data. This is another piece that's really driving forward a lot of, uh, a lot of pieces of deep learning, is that when you look at models that are robust to bad pieces of data, deep learning typically comes out ahead of the competition. Not, not always. You know, in, in the world of machine learning, there, there are no absolutes. Mm -hmm. But you see that these, these more general purpose models that aren't necessarily relying on handcrafted features but are learning a lot of that internally, learn how to filter out the noise on their own. And people are actually shockingly bad at filtering out that noise themselves. So as a rule of thumb for, uh, for sentiment analysis, we say people are usually about 95% accurate. We have a model that hits 93.5%. And at that point, clearly the problem is not we need to go out and have more examples of 95% accuracy. It's much more, we need significantly more lower quality data. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, maybe we could unpack that a tiny bit just for people who might not be totally familiar with sentiment analysis. Could you walk through uh, what the problem is and why it would be that humans are only at 95%? Absolutely. So the problem of sentiment analysis is taking a piece of text and guessing whether it is positive or negative. Um, so the, the best example that I give is if you look at Amazon, imagine reading a review and guessing what the star rating was. Mm -hmm. That's effectively sentiment analysis. It's something that humans are, not surprisingly, really quite good at. Mm -hmm. It's something where we can guess with about 95% accuracy how many stars someone's actually given a rating. But the issue is that there's a... People call it context dependency, people call it uh, subjectivity, there's a there's hundred different names for it, but the, the truth of the matter is it's not a definitive one-to-one -one mapping. I might think that the word incredulous is extremely positive, where someone else might have a much more negative connotation to that and just because I was incredulous at what this product was actually able to deliver, and I mean that very positively, someone else might come along and be like, wow, this person cannot believe this was such a bad product. Mm -hmm. Interpret it slightly differently so you see, you see those errors. It's usually more around those neutral classes that you see people getting really confused where uh, IMDB movie reviews are kind of one of the canonical problems in the field, one of the academic data sets that we were talking about earlier. What you see in some of these reviews is these long philosophical diatribes about how the movie made them recall their childhood, but maybe their childhood wasn't that good or it was a little bit dystopian. At the end, you're sort of left, 
okay, there were some positive points and there were some negative points and, you know, I didn't understand a third of what he said, so three stars? <laughs> uh, the person's like, no, actually, I quite like the movie. I gave it seven stars. There's just, there's enough subjectivity in a lot of these problems. You can start actually asking a question, which gets a little bit philosophical, whether the goal of a machine learning algorithm is to attempt to reflect some kind of objective reality or attempt to mimic whatever people say. And I think, by and large, as an industry, we've gravitated towards the second option of those two. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you'd said something, uh, I can't recall if it was exactly in the article or elsewhere in my research, but but uh, an astute comment I thought was that bigger data sets aren't necessarily what's better, but having metadata is uh, going to drive a lot of value. So we've talked a bit about labeling. Are there other aspects of metadata that you guys have been able to leverage that brings enhancements to your analysis? This gets a little bit into the technical details, but a lot of what Indico really believes in is this new motion kind of within the deep learning buzzword, if you will, called transfer learning. Mm-hmm. And the concept of transfer learning is that the majority of what a machine learning algorithm is learning as you teach it is not actually specific to the problem itself. There's a useful, it's, it's another paper, I can send it to you after, afterwards, it's, it's actually very fascinating. Um, for a long time there's this data set that's just cats versus dogs. I believe the highest accuracy we were able to achieve on it was about 85%, right? The problem is uh, show a computer a picture of a cat or a dog and it has to guess which one it is. Mm -hmm. Extremely hard problem. 85%, we were really quite happy with that. Then what someone did was they, they sort of looked at, at the internals of the model and they had this idea. And they said, okay, I'm going to take a different data set. Uh, so they used ImageNet, which is, you know, a thousand classes of uh, planes, trains, cars, boats, uh, also a lot of cats and dogs for mm -hmm. what it's worth. But they trained a model on that. And it didn't do extremely well, but that wasn't really the point. What they did was then they took that model that was trained on ImageNet, and they took all of the internal states. They took basically how this model had learned to look at images, basically the, the higher level features that it recognized, and they basically chopped off the input and output layers, and they said, okay, now we're going to give this a much smaller portion of the original cats versus dogs data set. And what they found was that the accuracy actually skyrocketed, is that I want to say with approximately a hundredth of the original data set, they were able to hit 95% accuracy. Um, someone will have to double check those numbers. I'm at least 80% confident that those are the right numbers. That's fascinating. You know, obviously with more data, continued increase. But the idea here is that when you take something, a, a convolutional neural net specifically in this case, what happens is that the, the top layer of the convolutional neural net is learning to recognize these very low-level features, you know, granular areas, smooth areas, nothing that really is understandable to a human. Mm -hmm. But then you stack these layers, and you stack these layers, and you stack these layers, and, you know, this is why it's called deep learning, is you keep stacking, keep stacking. Basically, each level, you get a little, little bit higher little bit more abstract and a little bit closer to something that really matters. So you get from, oh, this is a corner detector, this is a curve detector, if you, you know, really lucky you get a circle detector, all the way down to, oh, that's a stripe detector, that's a tail detector, mm -hmm. this, is a, this is a feature that responds to how cat-like the image is. And what they find is that once you get to that, that last layer where you're responding to these really high-level features, those features can actually be used for a wide variety of tasks. You have to use far fewer images to train your model because it already understands how to look at images. And in a very kind of roundabout way, what you can use is, is any metadata is really useful, is that if we take that, that original case of the image, if we want to build a beach classifier, let's say, the original way you would think to look at it, the problem is, okay, let me find a... 100,000 examples or 10,000 examples of beaches and not beaches, forests, deserts, things like that. Uh, deserts might be a little hard. 
But what this, this sort of this transfer learning approach says is that all metadata is useful. You can go out and you can train a model on a thousand different classes, none of which are beaches or forests or anything even related to the problem that you're working on, and actually use what you've learned classifying on that other metadata to apply to your original problem. So, you know, you could go out and, let's say, scrape a bunch of Tumblr, Tumblr blogs. Tumblr is actually pretty restrictive, so it's mm -hmm. probably not too easy to do. But get the tags associated with all those images. Say, okay, I'm going to build a classifier on that because that will teach my model to recognize things that are intuitive to people. And then use what that model learned, even though it was very different metadata, and use that to train uh, that beach classifier that you originally wanted to make. I don't know. That, that's, that's a sample of really what that metadata gets you, mm -hmm. is that it allows your machine learning models to learn in a way that even though it might not directly be the problem that you're solving, it's very critical to the underlying state of the model. There's all sorts of other pieces around geolocation data and timestamp data that can be useful for fundamentally different kinds of analysis. Mm -hmm. but the point is text data in and of itself is useless to anyone doing training. If you want to do interpretation on top of that, well, you know, that's where you turn to an indico, and we don't necessarily need the metadata because we're giving you new kinds of metadata. But the short is, without metadata, there's shockingly little value. Yeah, let's talk a bit about indico. Maybe to start, can you tell me what inspired you and your co-founders to start the company? To be honest, it was a little bit of an accident. I mentioned that uh, I worked at EdTech and Pearson, mm -hmm. um, and one of my really early claims to glory was that I came up with this system that hit a state-of-the-art named entity recognition. It's, it's certainly not state-of-the-art any longer. But then I got a little bit jaded because I had sort of built this thing and put my heart and soul into it, and it got locked up in a Pearson IP vault, which is, they're right, but it was just discouraging to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then my co-founder found me, and he was thrilled. We had just found this new site, uh, Kaggle. I'm sure you know Kaggle? Sure, of course, yeah. So this was one of the very early uh, whale sound competitions, and he reached out and he said, hey, I heard you know a little bit about machine learning. I'm trying to use a neural net to recognize where in these recordings there are and are not whale sounds. I didn't actually know neural nets. I was a big uh, support vector machine guy back then. Mm -hmm. I, I've since kind of changed camps. But I gave him some advice, but he was so passionate about it that he drew me back in. And actually, this, his co-founder is Alec Radford. A lot of people, I'm sure, I'm sure know him. He's very popular in the in the deep learning communities. But the point is, he was he was so passionate that even though we had no idea what we were doing in the early days, we're like, look, we have to do something here. Yeah. So we started recognizing the same problems again and again, and. Our first step was just saying, okay, we don't want to build the same thing again and again for multiple customers. But then we realized that that really betrayed a much deeper problem, which was that there was such a deep lack of knowledge and understanding about machine learning. And this was totally new for us. It's, we had been so immersed in this world for such a long time is that we assumed kind of everyone knew about it. And this was something that had given us so much, so much joy in our lives. And it was something that we both believed in really deeply. And so the mission of Indico became sort of as we experienced those first couple of contracting jobs, how do we educate people about this? How do we get this out to the world? How do we build tools that actually will allow a typical developer to interact with this without having to know the details of a support vector machine? And luckily, we were developing in Python, so a lot of these pieces were easy. But a lot of this also came right as these major libraries were being established. You know, when we first started work, Theano was something with the 50 GitHub stars. Mm -hmm. And we started really exploring this world. And that's kind of the, the trajectory we've been following ever since. It's just we want to bring machine learning to everyone. It's something that's given both me and my now three co-founders immense joy in our day-to-day -day lives. And it's something that we immensely enjoy looking into and working on and something that we want to bring to the rest of the world. Uh, and we see Indico as the best way to do that. 
Excellent. So could you tell me a bit about your specific services? Uh, how can people leverage you guys? Yeah, absolutely. So we focus on text and image analysis. At the very highest level, what we're attempting to do is take text and turn it back into people. Um, one of the things that we say internally is that uh, the digital age turned people into 140 characters. Indico <laughs> is how you go back. <laughs> Given some text written by a person, the idea is Indico can return to you all sorts of actually useful human information about them as far as their political alignment, what they're interested in, whether they're talking positively or negatively. So sentiment analysis is kind of the, the tip of the iceberg, if you will. The main verticals we found this to really apply well in is marketing is a very obvious one, mm -hmm. is a lot of people making marketing tools are interested in not just knowing, oh, tweet at 8 p.m., don't tweet at 2 in the morning, uh, but actually want to know, hey, uh, your followers are really interested whenever you talk about investment. Uh, especially when you talk about you know negative investment, when you have really negative sentiment associated with that, you should find more things to talk about in that realm because people will seem to be seem to be enjoying it a lot. That's sort of what we offer on the tech side. On the image side, a lot of those transfer learning pieces are really really what we're playing with. And we found that it's actually possible for an individual, you know, once we've sort of gone out and gathered very large data sets with useful associated metadata, we can sort of make this really powerful base model that will then allow people to train models with a tiny, tiny amount of data. I mean, we, we've put together demos where you can get models that will tell the difference between two people from less than 10 images. That, that one's uh, very much in beta, but it's something that we're exploring with a couple of select companies. Mm -hmm. It's really what we see as one of the big futures on images that since it is so cost prohibitive to get these large data sets, the idea is that we will spend the time and energy to get them and attempt to create models that will allow our users to not have to. How big of a company would I need to be before I'm past the barrier to entry to try out your services? So that's actually one thing that we feel very strongly about is anyone can try our services. From an individual working in a dorm room, actually we found that a lot of our tools are easy enough to use that even high school students have used them to win hackathons. Cool. All the way up to Fortune 500 companies. We really do believe that the core abilities of machine learning are something that's applicable to everyone. The only difference is that bigger companies have more data. So certainly I expect the data scientist to be able to make use of APIs. How accessible have you found your APIs to be for software engineers without a background in machine learning? So that's almost everyone who ends up using, using our product. Um, we care very, very deeply about usability. One of the things that made us very frustrated is, is when we were first getting into this space, it's not like there was no one else having offerings like this, right? There's Lexalytics, mm -hmm. Symmetria, Alchemy API, you know, a few of those other big players. But the usability was just awful. Um, you know, Lexalytics in particular has this huge queue ping system where you're waiting several seconds to get back an API response and you have to write, you know, 30 lines of Python to actually get the thing to work. We cut basically all of that out. A, we made everything available through a very simple call and response REST API and we're like, okay, that's a good first step for usability. But we decided that wasn't enough. So then we went and made client libraries. And what these client libraries do is that for most major languages, we support uh, six today. We actually have a wrapper for that REST API that will allow you to interact with the API just as you would a normal function call. So the idea is you call indicoio.sentiment of whatever string of text you want, and it just works. Our typical integration time with a customer is less than a day. We have a lot of traction at hackathons just because it is so easy to get up and running. And I can tell you, these are not people with degrees in machine learning. These are not people that even understand what the models are behind the scenes. And that's exactly 
what we think is so powerful about it is that without having to have any understanding of the underlying models that go into it, you can still understand the value and you can still use something that's high quality. And that's something that we didn't find that was being offered. So uh, what's on the cutting edge for you guys? What's coming next? There's a lot of really cool stuff kind of on the horizon. One piece is a large push for multilingual support. Hmm. I'm sure you're aware, but almost all of the literature today in machine learning is English-centric. Mm-hmm. Maybe you get lucky and find a paper on part of speech tagging in Arabic, uh, maybe something in Chinese, but by and large, it's, it's all English. And there's been very little study into how that actually scales across languages. And a lot of, a lot of companies have actually intentionally used older techniques because the path to multilingual support is clearer. What we found is that you actually don't have to do that. Um, we've gone out and we've found our own sources of relatively high quality data that is natively produced by people in those languages. So we plan on continuing that push into the multilingual realm, not just adding more languages, but also adding multilingual support across multiple APIs. Today, we support sentiment analysis and keyword analysis in uh, approximately 10 languages. So Arabic, Chinese, Japanese, Italian, German, Spanish, I'm sure several others, I'm forgetting English, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we found sources for several others. So that's, that's one big piece. The other piece is around visualization and data ingress. And what we found is that the predictive piece of the model is good and useful, and those, those APIs are, are very, you know, we still believe they provide a huge amount of value. But what we've also found is that almost everyone has two issues still. And these are really at the core of machine learning as, as a field. One is data ingress, saying, I have data somewhere else. How on earth do I turn it into a reasonable format? Mm-hmm. Um, and Twitter is a really great example where everyone wants to run these algorithms on Twitter data. There's a lot of very useful information trapped there. But the API is awful to work with. GNIP is significantly better than the public Twitter API, but a lot of people have huge difficulties sorting through it. And even more so if you go into individual surface providers. So, you know, I talked about Twitter because marketing was really the first area where we went. Um, But we're also doing a lot of exploration into customer support. And in the customer support space, learning how to integrate with the Zendesk or Help Scout API isn't that trivial, actually. And so making that process much easier, we see, is something that's very valuable. In addition to the data ingress ability, we also believe that visualizations are extraordinarily powerful. Um, So we actually have one demo up for this already. It's indico.io slash thumbprint. What we believe is that having the human insight is step one. Step two is actually translating that into something that can be understood by totally non-technical people. So we're actually making a series of APIs available that will not only do sentiment analysis, but also return very attractive visualizations based on that sentiment analysis. So you could um, say, inject your customer support data and immediately get a map back showing you the hottest pain points in your product. So you could actually feed in a person's Twitter handle and get back a report of which subjects they are most active in and what the sentiments that they associate with each one is. And I I suppose that the third area is something that we've started calling a near-human accuracy, is that we're, we're generally very dissatisfied with the quality of services offered today. If you look at a lot of very common players, they're talking accuracies in the realm of 75% for sentiment analysis. And that's just, it's not useful if you actually want to do analysis on small amounts of data. Mm -hmm. We see that improving the accuracy of models to be an absolute requirement to facilitate the use of small data. And so we're, we're now striving for what we call near human accuracy for all of our APIs, which is something that 
performs similar to a human in the majority of cases. So the idea is if you look at the response of this, you say, yeah, that's pretty close to what I would have said as a person in the majority of cases. Excellent. Well, I'll be sure to put some links in the show notes to some of the Viz stuff you've mentioned, if it's available, as well as for how people can sign up and uh, try out some of the APIs if they're interested. Absolutely. Cool. Slater, thanks so much for joining me today. I think this has been really interesting. And uh, I'm actually going to go around and play uh, with a few things and maybe put some stuff in the show notes that I tried out. Ah, great. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. If you need any help, just just ping us. We have a... I, I happen to still manually man support, and we respond in under 24 hours in 99.7% of tickets. Fantastic. All right. Well, thanks again. Have a good day. You too, Kyle. For more on this episode, visit dataskeptic.com. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. 